Hello, and you're tuning into Apa Kata Youth, a Hakam Youth podcast. Apa kabar, Belia? This podcast is brought to you by Hakam Youth, a space for conversations to help us youth navigate through the complexities of current issues in our tanah tumpahnya daraku, Malaysia. Hi there, and thank you for tuning in to Apa Kata Youth. My name is Ashrina. And I'll be your host for this episode with my friend Adlin, who's making her podcast debut. Why, hello there everyone. My name is Adlin Zaidi, your co-host for today. And thank you to Ashrina for that wonderful introduction. You are most welcome. <laughs> okay, so today we're doing things a bit differently this time around. Instead of dissecting one issue for your consideration as we've done in the past episodes. And also, if you haven't listened to those yet, please join the podcast party. This yes. time, we will be providing you with quick and easy Hakam Youth Digestibles of three hot-off-the-press issues. Right. Thank you for that, Adlin. And you are indeed right. We will be distilling and discussing three primary topics over the course of this episode. First, the deportation of over a thousand Myanmar nationals. This occurred mid-February this year. Second, the recent federal court ruling in the Malaysia Kini case. And last, but certainly not least, the unanimous declaration by the federal court that the criminalization of unnatural sex under Selangor Sharia law is void and unconstitutional, and we'll be tackling each in turn. Oof, so we've got a lot on our hands, don't we, Ashrina? Oh yeah, we sure do, but we'll get through each of them, don't worry. All right, so first, we have the deportation of migrants to Myanmar in defiance of a court order. So I think a lot of people have been seeing this hashtag migrant juga manusia mm-hmm. um, thing on their feed, whether it be Twitter, Facebook, or perhaps if you guys are on Reddit, that somehow the hashtag ended, that, <laughs> ended up there too. So what happened, right? Um, I think let's explain this slowly. All right. Yeah. So on 23rd of February, uh, Malaysia basically returned 1,086 Myanmar nationals to Myanmar on three ships, which were sent by uh, Myanmar's Navy, despite a KL High Court ruling that uh, there was to be an interim stay. What does this mean, right? This means that essentially everyone was to press pause on the proceedings and while, while the court suit was still pending, right? So that the mm-hmm. return should be delayed until 10 a.m. on the 24th of February, which was the next day because they were still waiting on a judicial review action by Amnesty International and Asylum Access. Yep. Yeah, so mm-hmm. um, amongst those people who were sent back to Myanmar, this included unaccompanied minors and toddlers as young as three years old. And yeah, Amnesty International alleged that there were more than a dozen deportees who were children with at least one parent in Malaysia, which mm-hmm. means that if probably there was a possibility of them getting citizenship if they were not deported and were to stay with their parents. But that's a discussion for another day. Yeah. So basically, um, Karul Z- Zaimi Dawood, who was the director general of Malaysia's immigration department, he said that the group were Myanmar nationals who were detained last year during a crackdown 
on undocumented migrants and had agreed to return voluntarily. So voluntarily. Yeah. So let's take this with a pinch of salt, right? A, a huge pinch of salt. A huge a cup pinch of, of salt. salt. Yes. Perhaps you a can't cup. even eat your food after that. With oh gosh, that amount no. of salt. But you get be- high blood pressure with this kind of food, man. Yeah. Um, please. We already have COVID. We don't want anyone to die from that. Oh, but, no. Um, basically, voluntarily means that they would go regardless of the date, right? That was set by the court. But why did the immigration department decide that it was to be done on the day before, before the judicial review was to be approved? Uh, this mm-hmm. is very sketchy in my opinion, but he basically said, oh, don't worry, everyone. These deportees did not include any asylum seekers or refugees from the persecuted Rohingya minorities. In other cases, in other words, they won't die. Um, we can't really confirm nor deny this fact because there is no way for us to fact check what he's ever said. What do you think, Ashrina? No, I think that this whole scenario just reeks of xenophobia. Reducing these refugees um, to mere objects or inconveniences to the Malaysian public. That's the sense that I'm getting from the reactions of these government bodies to the deportation of the Myanmar nationals. And this is, without mincing words, appalling and plainly wrong on many, many fronts. So just taking things on the face of international human rights law, for example, specifically the principle of non-refoulement. And this principle stipulates that migrants must not be collectively deported without an objective risk assessment being conducted in each individual case. I have my doubts as to whether this objective risk assessment, which was actually conducted in the first place, I mean, they're willing to sort of overlook a high court order and deport these people of their own will with no regard for the rule of law what the court has said in the first place. That sounds horrendous, honestly. Yeah, and this is just looking at the case study in an objective sense. Um, In looking at the broader implications of such atrocities with deportment and whatnot, we often forget or overlook the more human element that lies at the underbelly of such decisions, particularly as you've so astutely observed, Adlin, in the context of families and children. Yeah, it's really sad to hear, especially since these families and children, although it's just a number to some people, or 1,086, oh, it doesn't matter, it's not that many people, but you forget that each number there is a person, is a child Mm. who has their whole lives in front of them if they were given an opportunity to stay and to basically become part of our country and contribute if they were given the chance. But legally speaking, right, this deportation may possibly be breach of the UN Convention on Rights of the Children, which is also called the CRC, and also some related domestic legislation such as the Child Act. Yeah, and I think really at the heart of this sort of discourse lies the importance of understanding that we should not be reducing individuals to figures or statistics. Mm-hmm. And just to illustrate how harrowing the impact of this deportation can be, um, the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network recently published a tweet citing confirmation that at least, okay, at least two asylum-seeking children of 
the thousand plus people deported back to Myanmar were separated from their families. Oh no. Now, as the hashtag Migrant Juga Manusia identifies very astutely, migrants are just as human or you and I. And I don't think you need to be a parent to imagine the immense distress that their families must be under right now. Let alone, okay, what these two very frightened, very vulnerable children must be feeling in such a precarious situation. And please just bear in mind that the information I cited says at least two. Now, I don't think any amount of proverbial hand-washing will rid the government's conscience of this particular stain. These are children involved, which, as you've said, Atlin, they had their whole future ahead of them. Now, what's to become of them now that they're in this situation? We don't have the answer to that. Yeah, we, I think at this point, we can't deny that the government is essentially complicit in ruining the lives of these migrants who are also human beings like you and I. Uh, but crucially, the government officials who are involved are, in, in fact, guilty of contempt for defying the order issued by the High Court, which required them to um, stay and not be deported yet. And this was essentially um, suggested in a joint statement by four opposition lawmakers, which says a lot since um, a lot of people don't really care to say anything about this subject. And mm. so far as non-legal considerations go, the executive director of Fortify Rights even suggested that the move gives undeserving legitimacy to the abusive military coup in Myanmar. I think that it's a dangerous precedent for the government to set, especially since the Myanmar government isn't really seen in a positive light currently in the international arena. Yeah, and, and as you said earlier as well, just picking up um, on the point that you made about the statement that no Rohingya refugees were present in this group that was deported back to Myanmar, we can't even have the UNHCR confirm this. They've been blocked from detention centers since 2019. You know, they aren't even allowed to conduct interviews. This is, yeah, this is a pretty horrible move, if I must say, though, frankly, unsurprising from the Malaysian government at present. Yeah, I think there is definitely a lack of transparency in a lot of the things we do. But uh, especially in this case, even uh, non-governmental bodies can't even check or help confirm these facts that the government is actually trying to help as they are claiming to do. Uh, but let's look at the domestic response and how people have reacted on uh, the ground base level. So the day after, which was on the 24th of February, the court immediately ordered a delay of the return of the remaining 114 people who were waiting for the pending judicial review action. And mm -hmm. yeah, which says a lot since you know, within a day, a judicial review action can be passed. And it's not just, oh, they were sent back a day earlier. What is so wrong with that? I think you, I think the listeners should really view it in the context of a lot can change within a day. And mm -hmm. even the NGOs and CSOs like Amnesty International, Asylum Access, both of them condemned the, the move. And even in a joint statement uh, for opposition lawmakers in Malaysia also said that this was very inhuman for someone to be deported this way, especially when it's against uh, official orders by the court. 
So transparency is not exactly the forte of the Malaysian government, isn't it, Ashina? <laughs> so no. let's talk about how this case has like, impacted Malaysia exactly. On an international front, six UN human rights experts released a statement on 24th of February that condemned the Malaysian authorities for defying this court order and for breaching the non-refoulement principle that you mentioned just now, Ashina. Yeah. And it's gone so bad that even the US, who does not have a good human rights track record, mentioned that they were concerned about the deportation and this might possibly affect US-Malaysian relations as signaled by net price. Yeah, I mean, whatever said or done, I just hope that justice is served at the end of the day for the most vulnerable members of Malaysian society. And I think this sort of protection should be afforded to everyone, citizen or not. Mm -hmm. And now this brings us to the second issue of this episode. And I'd like to segue into this issue with a quote from the Artha Shastra. And this is an ancient pan-Indian treatise. And I found it very relevant and it goes a little like this. Any person who exposes the king or insults his counsel or makes any type of bad attempt on the king, then the tongue of that person should be cut off. Oh, that's scary. It's scary, but we seem to see a figurative form of tongue cutting in the very recent Malaysian Kini contempt of court case. Okay, so let's talk about the facts of the case, right? On the 19th of February 2021, the federal court decided on a 6-1 ratio that mm. Porto Malaysia Kini is guilty of contempt, but not its chief editor. So there were no dispute comments that these uh, comments were contemptuous. And Malaysia Kini even disputed the publication, which was presumed by law. Uh, to rebut this kind of presumption that happened, uh, they argued that they had no notice or knowledge of this case, and therefore it was a defense on their part. Mm -hmm. Based on the existing body of law, for there to be a publication, the alleged publisher must have knowledge regarding the publication of the comment. And, but however, the majority was of the view that Malaysia Kini should have known about the publication, considering the number of staff Malaysia Kini had. And mm -hmm. there was definitely an inadequate safeguards that was implemented, essentially the flag and take down system, which did not really work in this instance. I see. So that was the judgment passed by six members of the bench, but the minority judgment by Yang Arif Nalini, on the other hand, essentially states that Malaysia Kini should not be held liable for the non-moderation of comments by third parties, especially given the fact that the comments were remo removed a mere 12 minutes after the issue was brought to the attention of the people working at Malaysia Kini. Hmm, that's kind of weird. But let's talk about why this is wrong or dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. um, I just like to say from the outside that all we have right now at the present is the press releases from the federal court regarding the decision that was made. The yeah. full judgment containing a more complete elucidation of the grounds for the majority decision has yet to be published. Yeah, so... On that level, I suppose those of us in the court of public opinion should, re <laughs> should reserve judgment until we know the fuller grounds that were considered in arriving at this decision. 
But just as a starting point, this decision severely curtails basic civil rights regarding freedom of speech and expression via mere commentary. And I think this creates more uncertainty than it solves. I mean, what in the court's eyes does contemptuous speech actually encompass? Like, are we to constantly tread on eggshells for fear of ruffling feathers or being dragged to court for contempt? So the problem is this, where is the proverbial line in the sand, so to speak, to be drawn? And the Center of Independent Journalism, or CIJ, has sort of pitched in and said that the decision means that readers lose the opportunity to critique, form their own opinions, and make dissenting or alternative positions specifically on issues of public interest, which is precisely what was dealt with in this particular case. Well, surely we can make this distinction between informed comments of value and empty contemptuous speech, such as the five comments highlighted in the Bulijakini case. Yeah, exactly. And the law is meant to provide practical guidelines and solutions to everyday conduct in a way that preserves the basic liberties provided for in the Constitution. I'm genuinely not sure it does that here. I mean, in light of the Malaysia Kini judgment and the fact that apparently moderating over 2,000 comments a day isn't too onerous a task. <laughs> I mean, have the courts placed too heavy a burden on online news providers? Or anyone with a comment section for that matter? I think the real issue is this question, at least. What are the lengths to which online platforms are expected to go legally in ensuring that hateful or contemptuous speech is policed effectively? Yeah, I agree with you, Ashrina. Um, mm-hmm. Being on Twitter myself or <laughs> being on any comment section, I believe that it's quite a resource-intensive thing to do. Yeah, I mean, sifting through countless comments, like the lines remain blurred. Again, we keep going to practical solutions. Like my knee-jerk reaction to this decision was, oh, are online platforms now supposed to remove comment sections altogether in in a one-step move to just avoid future liability as absolutely as possible? I mean, I think it's such a shame because we'd be doing a massive disservice to people. We're erasing space for discourse, whatever these thoughts may be. Yeah, I mean, I think that there could be alternatives for companies to take to avoid liability. Maybe Mm -hmm. perhaps artificial intelligence, software programming to help with all these tone policing, right? Um, But I know that Malaysia Kini has such a software in place right now. Yeah, I think it was called Talk. I could be mistaken. Um, But again, we encountered difficulties with limitations in, in tech advancement. I mean, we live in Malaysia. People speak a multitude of of languages on a daily basis. AI, even the most advanced AI, may not be able to decipher speech that includes rojak comments or those made in Manglish or even those made purely in Malay or written in different characters. And it doesn't just stop there. Various figures have issued statements airing their grievances. You have... Um, figures from the Embassy of the United States saying, oh, we're concerned by the federal court's decision today against Malaysia Kini and the impact it will have on press freedom in Malaysia. Then you also have the British High Commissioner and acting Canadian High Commissioner um, saying in a joint statement, 
that media freedom is important to all societies and that people must be allowed to discuss issues freely. Hmm, that's very interesting, Ashina. And I guess mm-hmm. we're sort of left in the limbo as to where precisely the court has defined our boundaries of censorship and contempt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, all we can say is now that we're being thrown into uncharted waters where the boundaries of free speech are con- like concerned in Malaysia. And once again, we don't know what we can say and we what we can't say. Yeah. We will now be getting into the third and final issue regarding the invalidation of a Selangor religious enactment on unnatural sex by the federal court. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the most recent decision of the three issues discussed. So it's quite exciting, actually. And it's quite a decisive topic. So Ashrina, take it away. Happy to. So this is what happened on the 25th of February, 2021. A unanimous landmark decision was made by the nine-member bench of the federal court, essentially ruling that Section 28 of the Sharia Criminal Offences Selangor Enactment of 1995 regarding unnatural sex is void and unconstitutional. So for context, right, this ruling was made following a petition by Muslim men who was charged by the Selangor Sharia Court of attempting illicit relations with 11 other men three years ago. It's been quite a while, actually, this case. And I think yeah. it's, quite, it's quite famous and infamous for a lot of people. Uh, the Selangor Dun had enacted a law criminalizing unnatural sex as well. Yeah, so this is the story as far as the law is concerned. So essentially... States can enact laws on offences against the precepts of Islam for Muslims, but not when these are already on the federal list. And this is in the constitution. We can call this the federal no-no list. <laughs> and if, if such an offence falls within any of the matters in the federal no-no list, including criminal law, then states cannot legislate on the enactment. This power lies squarely within the purview of parliament alone. So in other words, by enacting a law criminalizing unnatural sex in this case, the Selangor Dun had acted in excess of the powers conferred by the constitution. And this is precisely what Chief Justice Tengku Maimun endorsed in allowing the declaration that the Selangor State Legislature was incompetent to pass a Sharia law that made it an offense to engage in unnatural sex. This ruling means that in the immediate case, the charges against all men involved will henceforth be dropped. Hmm, That's quite surprising. And the exact implications of this were pretty important as well, I feel, in this discussion. In celebration of this ruling, uh, human rights lawyer Michelle Yesudes also tweeted that one must recognize the importance of the decision. The courts have risen to its duties in interpreting the federal constitution, clearly demarcating the boundaries and the powers of the state legislative assembly, absolutely necessary when respecting the rule of law. I think it's important to recognize that as much as this issue is to protect the rights to privacy and family life of individuals within the LGBTQ plus community, it is also important to discuss that it is talking about limiting the powers of certain authorities who legislate outside of their powers that has been conferred upon them. Yeah, and as much as this is cause for celebration, we must also highlight that 
The ruling today does not mean that unnatural sex is no longer a crime in Malaysia. That still falls under Section 377 of the Penal Code, but it does provide clarity when it comes to Malaysian, when it comes to the Malaysian legal system. In fact, Limwejet tweeted that what this decision means is that state religious officials can no longer enforce state laws on this matter. But the police may continue to enforce Section 377A of the Penal Code, which, as I mentioned earlier, refers to the colonial era sodomy codes. So in this regard, we haven't yet caught up with India, for instance. Yeah, I agree. I think that we still have a lot of fights uh, in front of us. But mm-hmm. what this decision means is that Jais or the Jabatan Agama Islam Selangor will now no longer have the authority to use that state-enacted law to conduct raids, arrests, or charge anyone. We suspect that this will apply to religious departments all across states in good time. And I think this is quite important. Because mm-hmm. uh, though these powers of charging arrests and raids still lie with the PDRM uh, under the scope of 377A of the Penal Code, we still have some hope that our rights to privacy for any person in that matter who is afraid of this kind of law will kind of protect in good time. Yeah, I think a glimmer of hope is the right way to put this decision. Um, which, as you can imagine, um, is a particularly polarizing topic in Malaysia. And this is very visible in the whole liberal-conservative dichotomy that you see um, in the responses to this landmark ruling. Now, on the conservative end, it was reported on the 28th of February that the Religious Affairs Minister, Zulkifli Muhammad al-Bakri, noted how Jakim, the Islamic Development Department, is now to hold discussions with relevant parties in its efforts to, quote, improve and streamline, end quote, Sharia laws, especially those related to Sharia criminal offences in the country. On the other hand, you have the Malaysian Reserve also reporting that Pertubuhan Pertubuhan Pembela Islam, also known as Pembela, their chairman, Aminuddin Yahaya, said that detailed study and amendments are needed to ensure that the scope of Sharia jurisdictions in the country is preserved. And he says that the Apex Court's decision has, quote, opened the floodgates to other lawsuits that could challenge the Islamic jurisdictions in the future. And how can the state, which deems itself to be secular based on the constitution, which also, by the way, preserves and protects the implementation of Islamic law, further develop and balance these two separate views, if I may put it that way. Yeah, I agree. This is quite a tough thing to do, especially since we are consisted of many Muslims, many non-Muslims, many people who probably don't want to subscribe to this kind of law in the first place. But on the other side of the coin, this decision has been touted as a positive impact, not just on the LGBTQ community, but also as Malaysia as a whole. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that uh, protecting anyone's rights is something that can be celebrated uh, and shared in common with everyone. And yeah, yeah the local LGBTQ uh, content portal Queer Lapis said Section 28 has often been used against marginalized and persecuted communities on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. 
they've also stated that the judgment provides justice for them, which is the LGBTQ individuals, mm-hmm. and clearly upholds the dom- democratic principles that underpin the primacy of the federal constitution, which is very good because um, everyone should be protected under the constitution, regardless of their religion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about religion, Sisters in Islam, also known as CIS, hailed the federal court's ruling that a Sharia law on unnatural sex was unconstitutional, calling it important and significant for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community. Although it seems like it is a celebrated victory for a lot of queer right movements, on a legal basis, this ruling technically concerned a decision regarding scopes of power pursuant to what is contained in the federal no-no list. It wasn't necessarily slanted in the direction of protecting human rights now, was it? That mm-hmm. was a, yeah, that was a byproduct of the federal court's reasoning. Yeah, and I think all we can hope for with this byproduct, as, as you put it, Adeline, is that this ruling leads to a kinder, gentler discourse amongst Malaysians that accounts for the experiences and feelings of marginalized communities. And I really just hope that at the end of the day, this opens the door to more holistic discussions regarding queer rights and their personhood. Yeah, I hope so too. And that about wraps it up for this episode of Apakata Youth. Thank you for tuning in and do keep up with current events in the Malaysian human rights sphere by following us on our social media platforms. We're at Hakam Youth on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Bye for now!